Howdy, Ags. Welcome back to Aggie Growth Hacks, the podcast sponsored by the McFerrin Center for Entrepreneurship at Texas A&M, where we are dedicated to highlighting fast-growing Aggie entrepreneurs, learning how they overcame challenges with creative growth hacks, and connecting them with other entrepreneurs in the Aggie network. I'm your host, Greg Martin, Fighting Texas Aggie Class of 2001. And I'm your co-host, Chris Hunter, Fighting Texas Aggie Class of 1998. Whoop. Got a little story for you, Ags. Keith Allen East, Fighting Tech Zaggy Class of 2004, has built a major spice distribution company that was born out of the time Keith and his other founders spent in Afghanistan. Keith talks about building a company in a conflict area and improving lives literally around the world. So pass it back and listen up to Keith as he shares some good bull about his company, Rumi Spice. Welcome back, Ags. We have got probably one of the most exciting interviews that I have been anticipating as we were building out season three, Keith Alanese. He is the board director and founder of Rumi Spice, Fight and Tech Zaggy class of 2004. Uh, and Keith and I, actually, we go back a long time. Uh, we, we were in the Corps of Cadets together and Keith knew me at, in my previous life when I was all things HUA and all things military. But the thing that I, I love about Keith, and I can't wait for you to hear his story, is that, that Keith has followed his passion and has has created a business in a area of conflict in Afghanistan, is an importer, and he is our the first guest on Aggie Growth Hacks who has presented on Shark Tank. So Keith, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate your willingness to to share your story and to to allow us to learn from you. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. It's great to great to reconnect and, and great to be on the show. Awesome. Well uh, we always love to kick off. We we are obviously Aggie Growth Hacks, and we love Texas A and M. So tell me, what is your favorite Aggie memory? And you get bonus points if I happen to be in it. But if not, then that's okay too. <laughs> Man, I, I tell you, as this was coming up, I was uh, going on a run the other day and trying to you know knock out a little five mile run, and Good it reminded for you. me of well, you, I mean, I won't share the time that it took me to do that, but it, but it reminded me of. Uh, when Greg was, uh, you know, we were in an organization called the Runners Rangers, and and uh, when Greg was leading that organization, we used to have these five mile runs, and we had to make it in forty minutes. And I, and I was, you know, I, I just kind of tell myself like, okay, I did this stuff back in college, I could, I could do it still, but that's been quite a while for <laughs> for both of us now, you know. So I, it's, it's hard to choose like one one favorite memory. I think like just the experience, you know, core cadets and all the challenges of, you know, a young man growing up and how that how that shapes you, all of that, like you know, our, our fond memories, you know, for me, you know, obviously Aggie football games are, are great too. And, yep. and marching into Kyle field is something that, you know, is, is a just unforgettable moment. I love that. You know, I wasn't in the core, but I always wanted to be, and, and, you know, so happy to hear everyone, you know, that comes on the show that knows Greg. That's the funny part. A lot of these folks know Greg and they don't hold it against them either. So that's, that's even best. <laughs> Very well said, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right, sure Greg and I, if we had to, could knock out a five mile run, you know. <laughs> oh, we, we <laughs> could in a long time. I could drive five miles. No problem. <laughs> Love it. All right, Keith. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Rumi Spice and, you know, why are you passionate about that business? Sure. So uh, Rumi Spice started as, you know, the concept was to connect farmers in Afghanistan with markets in the U.S. A few colleagues of mine who uh, we knew each other from the military. We had all served in Afghanistan. And it was, you know, during Afghanistan where we discovered this problem. And, and the problem was that Afghanistan farmers, you know, 85% of the country is connected to agriculture in some way. 
and the farmers lack an access to, to markets. And at best, they can sell in their local village markets. You know, the better ones can sell in the like city centers like Kabul and the major cities. But as far as reaching international markets, it just hadn't happened. And, you know, through 40 years of warfare, they've been completely cut off from, from the international marketplace. So a uh, friend of mine from the military, Kim Jung, you know, my co-founder, we got together and thought, you know, hey, we can answer this problem. If we can just connect some of these farmers with U.S. markets, provide an access for their goods, we can catalyze economic development, we can provide jobs, and by providing jobs, we can provide stability. So that's sort of how it started. And we started with one single spice, uh, saffron, which for those of you who don't know, saffron is the world's most valuable spice. It's very unique, takes a lot of labor to produce, and it sells for anywhere between $1,500 to $2,000 a, a kilogram. So about $5,000 a pound. Wow. Um, so it's, it's, wow. it's quite quite expensive. And these farmers in Afghanistan were growing this incredible saffron uh, with nowhere to sell it. So we thought this was a great opportunity to connect farmers with U.S. markets. Let's start selling the saffron. Let's go to talk to some chefs and see what happens. And, you know, from there, it's just blossomed. And today we're found in over 1,900 stores across the country. Um, we sell saffron as well as cumin and other spices as well. Keith, that that is wow! That I had no idea that saffron was was that was that expensive. Now is, that price that you said is that that the retail price or is that the price that the farmers actually would get? That's that's the price that the the farmers would get, Greg. And uh, what what's interesting about the the price is that you know for one thing you know the the logistics of getting stuff out of Afghanistan is fairly complicated. Uh, you have to either ship it by air or or by ground, which can take a long time. But when your your value of your crop is so high. That logistic cost of shipping by air is, you know, minimal compared to the to the prices of the product. So that allows us to sort of circumvent the whole, you know, having to ship by ground. Now the other spices we ship by ground, and we have a um, a whole process for that. But that makes that logistical piece easy. But the really exciting part is that for those who have been following Afghanistan, it's you know the probably the world's largest producer of opium, and it has been for a, a long time. And a lot of these farmers that are producing opium don't do so because they want to participate in the drug trade, that they don't want to deal with people like the Taliban who are the ones who are involved in this illicit trade. But there's there's no other alternative for them, or there hasn't been an alternative for them, but for opium. And opium grows in very arid, dry climates. Well, it happens that saffron grows in those same exact arid, you know, high altitude, dry climates. And oh, by the way, saffron is more valuable for the farmers than opium. So what we've done you know, in the past few years, we work with somewhere between six and 900 farmers each harvest. And I would say roughly two thirds of those farmers were once opium producers and now have switched their fields from growing opium to growing illegal crop saffron. And they get more value for it and they're not supporting the Taliban. So at the same time, we're cutting off revenue streams for, for the bad guys. Uh, so there's all this positives that come with, with developing the saffron crop in Afghanistan. Oh, okay. That that's amazing. That's so so multifaceted and so cool that that you guys solve that problem in, in a unique way. Very cool. Congratulations to, to you and your founders. Um, now I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go off script a little bit here. Um, when we were talking a little bit pre pre roll, um, you you had mentioned that you are a founder and now the board director uh, of Rumi Spice. So so you have actually taken a step back out of. Uh, out of day-to-day operations. So the challenge that, or the question I'm going to have is what has been your, your biggest personal challenge to growth as you, as you have changed roles within the company and, and how have you hacked it? Yeah, that's a great question, Greg. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, especially founders who start something from the ground up may find themselves at a point where they, you know, you, you give all you can to the company 
and you find that you have a learning curve to continue growing the company and it's in the company's best interest to accelerate that learning curve and maybe bring in someone who has the right experience at the right right time. So that's where I found myself. We had really solved the supply chain issue. We had you know, done what hasn't been done in Afghanistan and create this vertically integrated company where we're getting crops out of Afghanistan, saffron and cumin and, and other products. Uh, and our challenge was growing a retail CPG business. Uh, now that's something that, of course, anybody can learn, but people who have already learned that, it's, it's a lot quicker to just bring them in onto the team to, to help us grow. So we found a great CEO, uh, Patty Doyle, uh, who came to us with a lot of food experience from like large companies all the way to small companies. And that really allowed us to just, you know, hit the ground and firing on all, all six cylinders uh, with expanding our, our CPG presence. And so that allowed me to sort of step back from, you know, the day-to-day operations and managing Rumi Supplies day-to-day. And, you know, the challenge was really like, how do you add value on a strategic basis? You know, whereas you're used to being in the nuts and bolts, now you're thinking like longer term, you're working more with investors and potential investors. If you're like me, you're probably working another job full-time. So you're doing this like sort of in your off time. And that's, that's been challenging. Of course, it's COVID time has been challenging for, for everyone as well. But, you know, I, I think that having that perspective of an operator and a CEO and understanding what constraints and what pressures the CEO is under and, you know, also wearing now a board director hat, uh, I think I have a good perspective on, you know, giving the CEO space to execute, uh, but also providing the resources to, to the CEO that, that she needs to succeed. So, you know, I see my role, you know, very much as going and finding investors who are willing to help us continue to grow and been very active in sort of the fundraising model. And then also, you know, just, just keep keeping, you know, being some like a sounding board and someone who can, she can reach out to, you know, when it comes to the, managing the Afghanistan supply chain, because that's, you know, still a unique part of our business. I have never even thought about the spice industry. Honestly, that's just one of those, especially with saffron and Afghanistan. So knowing everything that's happened in the past year to pretty much every single business in the entire world, and it sounds like you've got you, you had some supply chain issues that you did get figured out. How did you get that figured out? I mean, was there a hack? Was there a pivot that you did during that time frame to kind of get things going again? And how did you overcome that? Yeah, that's a great question, Chris. You know, when we started out, there was just zero infrastructure for exporting products, particularly agricultural products out of Afghanistan. So we had to create everything from the ground up. And it was an iterative process of learning what works, what doesn't work. One thing that I think is a good case in point with how we how we develop our supply chain. Traditionally, saffron was grown by farmers, and it's hard. So a little bit about the harvest process. The, the the saffron comes from a flower, which grows for a period of two to four weeks in you know early to late fall, depending on the the weather cycle. Those flowers are picked by hand, and traditionally they were taken into farmers' homes near the fields and then processed by women in the household or in the extended family who are providing labor, but are not generally paid, you know, direct wages for that labor. But they extract the saffron threads from the flour uh, that's all air dried and then, you know, packaged up and then sold in the local market. Well, that presents, you know, a number of problems for a growing company. Uh, one, you know, when you have, you know, hundreds of farmers in individual farmhouses gathering and processing the saffron, it makes having quality control nearly impossible. And so, you know, for our larger customers who are expecting consistent quality in what we deliver, we can't do that when we when we have you know hundreds of different farmers in, in different places. Uh, so there was a need for us to consolidate this into uh, a single processing center. The other aspect is that the farmers themselves are limited in their capacity to produce based on the number of laborers that they have in their family and extended family. So you know a family with 20, 20 people, you know women primarily who can do the processing can only produce as much as 
20 women can produce in that given time period. Uh, so they would only grow as much as they could process. So in order to unlock that, we wanted to centralize our processing and get labor from the community where where they could come in and, and do the processing. And now the farmers who still process in their homes and sell on the market, they get a higher value for the processed product than they do from the raw product. What we do is buy directly from the farmers the flowers, and then we process them ourselves in a central facility where we're able to maintain quality control. And by the way, because we have centralized facilities, we're able to go out and hire laborers. And instead of having this informal economy where the women are working and not getting direct wages, we're paying direct wages to these women, which in a place like Afghanistan, where women were not allowed to work under the Taliban, is really transformative. And we have a number of women who have come up through our system and are now managers and quality assurance managers within the factory. You know, they're, they're supporting, you know, a large family and they're the, the major income winner for the family. And that's just really transformative with the way that people view women in that society. So there's a lot of positives that came out to what was essentially a supply problem. And we solved it with some social benefits as, as well and have a, have a tremendous social impact with the amount of women that we're able to hire in our, in our processing centers. Keith, when you were talking, I was thinking to myself, this is, this is a microcosm of the Industrial Revolution in the United States, where, where as a nation, we went from an agrarian society into a industrial society. But you, you have kind of taken that model in, in very small in, that, in Afghanistan or in that specific parts of Afghanistan. Um, that, that's got to be pretty cool to, to kind of see what's old is new again. Yeah, Greg, that's, that's like such an astute observation. And it's something that sort of dawned on me as we were going through this process. It's like, this is not any different than how you know, the U.S. developed over t- particularly Texas, right? Like Texas is a really strong agrarian-based economy. And we've sort of developed with improvements in the processing and, and, and the uh, production of whatever it may be, cotton or other crops. And, and that's really like sort of fed the growth of Texas over over the next, uh, you know, over, over the centuries. Yeah. And, and yeah. So, so you heard it here, folks. Afghanistan is going to be the next Texas. You heard it, heard it here. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> that was my big, hairy, audacious goal that, that you're going to ask me. I mean, it, it really is. You can imagine that, um, what what, hap- what would happen to the U.S. if we were subjected to 40 years of warfare. It would set us back, you know, centuries, potentially. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's where Afghanistan is at now. But that doesn't mean there's any limits to where, where it can grow. Um, yeah. Especially with you know the international community helping out. Let's just jump right into that. Tell us what what is Rumi Spice's big hairy audacious goal? What what's your five or ten year vision? I can say with a high degree of confidence, in five years you're going to see Rumi Spice products in most retailers. This fall we're we're already nationwide distributed in, in Whole Foods with uh, a few of our products, but this fall you'll see the whole Rumi Spice line in every Whole Foods store across the country. And I think in five years you'll see Rumi Spice in you know Target. You know, every store that you go to, and we're going to start replacing, you know, our competitors because we have something compelling to share. Not only are we very high quality spices that are coming direct from farmers, but, you know, consumers can have a social impact with the dollars that they're spending. And there's this growing culinary appreciation among U.S. consumers that, you know, food is more than just spices, especially it's more than just something that you, you know, it's more than salt and pepper, you know, like your the right. quality of the products that you put in your body really matter. And having like high quality products that are, organically grown and that that are you know not uh like sort of big big industry products is, is important and it's healthy for you so at five years I, I with a high degree of confidence you'll see us everywhere and in 10 years you know afghanistan is is you know the next texas it's similar in size to texas similar in population has a very young populace and they're producing tremendous goods not only in agriculture but other other you know sectors as well 
So, uh, you know, I'm still focused on growing Afghanistan as, as a, you know, the economy grows and getting more products out of Afghanistan. And I think the sky's the limit for the country. Might be a contrarian view right now because, you know, you still hear in the news about conflict. But, you know, I, when I talk to the Afghans, I don't hear about conflict. I hear about, you know, hope. I hear about problem solving. I hear about entrepreneurs solving problems every day in the country. And, and that's what gives me hope for the long-term future of the country. That's my assessment as well. I mean, I spent a little bit of time there years ago, but it was, I mean, it's a very beautiful country. Um, I, th- I personally, I think it was, you know, just the mountains and everything was, was much more beautiful than other places I deployed. But the people there are genuine and the people want to improve their lives and they want to have some freedom. So that's awesome. And I love Big Harry Audacious goal. Uh, what I wrote down was every spice in every store is going to be roomy spice. So <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Pretty cool. We're, we're getting there. We're getting there. So I've got a follow up question to what you had mentioned earlier on that you have a lot of women working in the I can't remember exactly what you called it. Is, is it a manufacturing facility? Is it a processing plant? How does that affect the risk that you take on as a business if Taliban, let's say, takes over control again? Or, you know, how does that that affect your as you're looking into the future, how that how are you going to do things if the Taliban does take over? Yeah, that's a great question, Chris. And it's something we have to address all the time when we go out to investors, you know, what, what happens if, if the Taliban take over. And I'll tell you, political risk is, you know, you always have black swan events anywhere in the world, right? Like even here in the U.S. And it, it's impossible to predict what might happen politically. But one thing we're trying to do to insulate ourselves from anything that might happen, you know, politically in Afghanistan is that we rely on no Afghan government sources for money or grants or anything like that. It, this is a pure value for value business where we're providing value to the farmers in terms of our purchasing and they're providing value to us. And they ask, they ask for nothing from us beyond, you know, being a customer of theirs. So, you know, we, we try to maintain that sort of distance from, you know, getting tied up in what political party, whether here or, or in, in Afghanistan is, is, you know, in charge at any particular time. This is a pure, pure business play uh, with a social, social impact imperative. So we act as a, as a countering force to any sort of like political instability because we're providing jobs, we're providing income for these farmers. And this is just an example. And I think maybe listeners from Texas can appreciate this or anywhere, any place that has like a lot of like farm and market roads. So you can drive across Texas and you see FM, this and that. And some of them are paved and some of them are not. Uh, so it used to be that our farmers that we work with, it might take us three hours to get out to the farm, to go visit the farm where, where the saffron flowers are grown. But over the last five years that we've been working, all those roads are now paved and it takes like 15, 20 minutes to get out to these farmers. And that's, you wow. know, not solely because of saffron, but a lot of it is because now these farmers and these villagers, you know, who have their own sort of, you know, governance, they, they, they meet together and they have their elders and they go advocate for themselves. Now they're going to the, the city and the province and they're saying, hey, we have all these products coming into the city. We need our, our road paved, you know, and, and so that extends the road. And not because the city's trying to deploy security forces there, but because the farmers want that road to go to their area. You can imagine like those workers are building a road and if someone comes in and wants to disrupt that, well, they're going to create a lot of enemies with that with that village if they want to destroy that road because that village relies on that road for income. So, you know, for the Taliban, they're making a calculation like, okay, well, now I'm, I can't really go and attack these villagers because I'm, I don't want to create a bunch of enemies. So it just pushed them away and, and continues to push them. And, you know, we're, we're pulling people from, you know, from the clutches of the Taliban and making them connected to the Afghanistan government. But again, we're doing that without, you know, it's not like we have soldiers there or people with guns or anything like that. We're not forcing them. It's just pure, you know, the, the good part of capitalism. It's, it's making things, the free market is, is making things better. Keith, I'm just 
and I know Chris as well, we're just inspired with the vision that you have and how the impact that you are having in Afghanistan is so, so multi-layered. Um, and I can talk to you all day, but um, we need to, we want to respect everybody's time, respect our listeners' time. Um, so let's, let's pause for just a second. And we want to say thank you very much to this episode's sponsor. All right, now we're back. So Keith, let's, uh, let's roll right into the lightning round. And you've dropped so many value bombs already. Can't wait to hear this, this next set of questions. But to answer these questions, 30 seconds or less, and we'll, we'll keep flying through it. What is your personal favorite hack, whether personally that you apply in your own life or in business? What's something that, that we can learn from you? So this is something I've learned over relatively recently, but I like starting from, from the goal in mind. So when you're thinking about what you want to accomplish, you know, create your objective and then think back to like creating what measurables you have to achieve to meet that objective and then take a step back and then figure out what you have to do today. So instead of thinking, you know, and maybe becoming overwhelmed with all the things that need to occur, you know, you think about, you know, your, your six month, one year plan and what you want to accomplish and then walk backwards and, and start thinking, you know, what are the steps I need to do today to accomplish that? And that's something you need to do like almost on a weekly basis to keep yourself as an entrepreneur focused. I think one of the biggest enemies of being a founder and, and starting from the bottom up is that there's a lot of distractions. So you, know, you can't do everything. You're not going to boil an ocean in, in one day. You need to take it step by step and you need to plan with the objective in mind. Always moving forward. Love that. Yep. Yep. Love it too. All right. Next question. What's one book, podcast, YouTube channel, whatever that you get a lot of value out of it that we can share with our audience? All right, podcasts besides Aggie Growth Hacks, which which I love, by the way. I've been listening to a lot of uh, Freakonomics and then Guy Raz, How I Built This. I I really love just hearing anything that has other entrepreneurs on there. It's it's really cool to hear how they're solving problems. Yeah, those are both great podcasts. Love them. Love them. Uh, So we know the Aggie Network is valuable. And I, I know just from talking with you and knowing your story that you have leveraged the Aggie Network as you have grown. Rumi Spice, is there anyone specifically in the Aggie Network or group of people that you just like to say thank you to, send some good bull? I'd like to say thank you to, you know, the Aggie Angel Network. You know, we have an investor from the Aggie Angel Network and just being able to, as an entrepreneur, reach out to that network to go and uh, seek advice and seek fundraising is, is very powerful. And, and I hope more Aggie entrepreneurs, you know, reach out to them. It's, it's a great, great network of people who are trying to support entrepreneurs. Real quick follow up on that. Did you find the capital or getting the cash valuable, the information, the advice that you've got? I mean, because cash is important, but information and helping you grow in some ways is probably even more. But that's my my assumption. Is is that correct? Or? No, that's absolutely true. I mean, cash is a commodity, as they, as they say. Um, and when you're you know seeking fundraising, especially for an early stage company, you're looking for people who are going to add value beyond the capital. So it's great to have sort of some, some kindred spirits within, within the Aggie network who can provide both capital and you know advice when needed. So agree with that. So agree with that. Okay, so how can the Aggie network get in touch with you and support you moving forward? So you can, you can always reach out to me. My email is Keith at RumiSpice.com, R-U-M-I Spice.com. So happy to talk to anybody within the Aggie network. You know, anybody listening, just, you know, I just ask you to support our product and go to, go to uh, the store and take one off the shelf. You know, and, and I'm always happy to talk to people who are interested in, in maybe, you know, becoming part of our team as an investor or just with reach out with good bull or, or advice. Well, Keith, thank you so much for this amazing interview. I learned so much and I'm just blown away with the impact that you're having, not only here, but but around the world. So thank you for your time. Thank you for what you're doing. And thank you for sharing with us today. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. It's been fun. 
How about that, Eggs? Was that spicy or what? You like that? Hey, there were some really valuable hacks that Keith shared with us. What was your favorite, Greg? There were so many, but I think the thing that struck me the most was he talked about looking at your long-term vision and then doing all the backwards planning and then finding out what you need to do today. What is the most important thing that I need to accomplish today in order to move this forward? You said you can't boil the ocean in a day, but you've got to take that step forward. And and sometimes, especially in the last couple months when things have just gotten, continue to be crazy and you feel overwhelmed, to be able to just take a step back and realize, I can't do everything today, so what's the most important thing? And move forward. What about you, Chris? I 100% agree with you, you know, and starting with the end of mine is, is every single entrepreneur has to do that. I think mine really revolves around his BHAG and, and really what the company stands for and really what they're doing. And I, I don't want, I don't want to say that it's really a, a hack, but this is a lot bigger than just spicing the spices, right? Taking an entire country and working with that and not only building a business around spices and the spice trade and, and everything that goes along with that, but actually taking and improving an entire country an entire, I mean, I'm not saying that they're completely changing the entire country, but they're doing it one little bit at a time. Yeah. yeah. They, they have a huge impact on that. I mean, even taking, for instance, having the women who have never traditionally been able to hold a job because of the Taliban, right? They now employ the majority of their uh, you know, employees are, are women in the processing center. So, I mean, I think that's huge. Improving the lives of everyone around you should be an altruistic goal of every single company out there. And I love it. Love what they're doing. Well, that's going to do it for another episode of Aggie Growth Hacks. We really hope that you enjoyed us and that you'll leave us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbeam, wherever you found us. Be sure to check out our website, aggiegrowthhacks.com, where you can hear all of our episodes. You can connect with us. And then starting in season three, we are actually starting to post monthly hack shops. We hope that you find these valuable and you check those out. And who knows? Maybe you'll be featured on a future episode of Aggie Growth Hacks. Aggie Growth Hacks was produced by fellow Aggies Kyle Ackerman and Ben Wiggins with Podcast Architects. We also want to give a huge shout out to our sponsor, the McFerrin Center for Entrepreneurship at Texas A&M. Since 1999, the McFerrin Center has served as the hub of entrepreneurship for Texas A&M University. If you're an Aggie entrepreneur or even a entrepreneur, head over to their website and find the program that's right for you. Join us next time where we connect with another great Aggie entrepreneur and learn how they hack their growth. Until then, I'm Chris Hunter. And I'm Greg Martin. Thanks and gig em.